0: It gives me great pleasure to have Dr. Victoria Impet on our show today. She is a veterinarian at Rancho Cucamonga Animal Care Adoption Center and is one of the most remarkable figures in the Southern California shelter system I have encountered in a while. And just to give you a little background on Dr. Impet, Victoria was born in San Francisco, California, and she knew from the age of five that she wanted to be a veterinarian which is pretty young age to have that commitment. She has spent the last 25 years working with animals. And during her pre-vet studies at the University of Washington, she began volunteering at the Seattle Humane Society to gain experience. After college, she earned her RVT license and worked at the San Francisco SPCA and at Seattle Humane, this time as medical services supervisor. After years in small animal medicine, Dr. Impet was encouraged to go back to school to be a veterinarian. After graduating from Western University of Health Sciences in 2010, she completed an internship medicine and surgery in San Diego. Dr. Impeth then went into private practice before going back to shelter medicine at the city of Rancho Cucamonga Animal Care and Adoption Center in July 2014. And it is a great pleasure today, Victoria, to have you on America Speaks. Thank you so much. You know, I think we, all of us, owe you a debt of gratitude because there are few jobs, I can say, that may present as many challenges as your profession, your job, and the location. But I just want to get a sense from you, from when you began work as a veterinarian at Rancho Cucamonga, Have you felt that every day you look as forward to going to work and is the commitment and your energy towards taking care of animals, does it remain more and more uplifted every day?
1: I think it definitely does. I mean, having been in the, you know, veterinary services in one field or another, different shelters over 25 years, I can really kind of see the progression. And I think especially... In the last decade, five to 10 years, I mean, we've really just seen shelter medicine start to blossom in a really a lot of positive and great ways in the direction that everyone wants it to go. It's now a recognized specialty within the Veterinary Medicine Society. And so I think that's really helping us be progressive in all shelters and really see us move towards programs that are helping to keep animals in homes, get animals into homes faster Improve the quality of care when they don't have homes. And so that really feeds those of us who have had a passion to do this, to really keep doing more and be more innovative to try to get um, these animals back to the owners where they're supposed to be, educate people on how to be responsible pet owners and how to you know, really improve the system overall.
0: With that, I would be concerned with the cost of providing veterinarian care in a city shelter. So, do you get grants, separate grants for veterinarian care?
1: We do a little bit. As a city shelter, I think the resources is definitely the biggest challenge. I mean, all of the county and city shelters are taxpayer-funded out of the general funds, and so resources are kind of limited, and it can vary at any time depending on how the economy and other programs are going. So most foundations, or we at Rancho, we also have a foundation where we can apply for grants, and we take donations from citizens, and we do a lot of fundraisers to try to, to augment and support our programs. A lot of our the basic needs, the basic care, um, you know, the food, the building, the electricity, and stuff is provided for out of the general fund. But then, really, to be able to go above and beyond and do the medical care and specialized surgeries, we have to do a lot of fundraising and try to access grants and things like that.
0: One of the things that I find so reflective in your work is an effort to keep animals alive as long as possible and to actually place them either with rescues or with private adopters. And really and truly, it's to everyone's credit at Rancho Cucamonga, the decrease in euthanasia rates. And I think we get a greater clarity of understanding that when we look at the conditions that animals come into your shelter with. So let's just briefly give the public a sense of what kind of conditions that you deal with on an average day.
1: Yeah, I think when you look at the shelter system and the animals that are unowned, the majority of animals coming into shelters are coming in as strays, probably upwards of 80% or more. Some do come in as owner surrenders or as confiscate cases in a cruelty investigation, but the majorities don't have owners. They're coming in generally with no health history, probably have never received vaccinations or any sort of preventive care. They are often in poor health, you know, underweight, matted coat conditions, full of fleas and ticks, just have really not received kind of basic preventive and wellness care. And so when you kind of pull back the lens of whatever all the shelters are dealing with, you look at the overwhelming number of animals that we have in the population. So the shelters are just overwhelmed by the volume and the number of animals and cases that they see, and then the sort of quality of care that they have received. So generally, we want to have a population that's coming in that has an immune system, who has vaccines on board, who already has had some care. And it makes those cases easier to then place them to new homes if we had owners who could share a little bit about their upbringing, their background, what they've been going on with. We really come in, we have no history, we have no backgrounds, we just have to sort of start from scratch on all the cases and do what's in the best interest of that animal and really take kind of each case Individually, although you're dealing with a whole herd and a whole population of animals that you have to keep in mind, but really, I think looking at what can I do now as now I'm acting as the owner on behalf of this animal, what does this animal need right now? And a lot of it is just the basic care that they haven't gotten previously.
0: I think it's important for us to really be mindful here of breaking down the various levels of urgency that you may see during a given day or a week. So, your shelter and you specifically have a reputation of going above and beyond what many of the other city and local state and county shelters do. And this is one of the things that I find so remarkable about you as a veterinarian. And this is not to say anything negative regarding any other shelter because they do what they can. But I think your approach to healing an animal that can be treated is remarkable. So what do you find is a condition Condition that is a pretty run of the mill condition that you deal with that you can treat inside the shelter?
1: I think for us, the most common thing we face are the upper respiratory infections. So, especially with our cats. We know a lot about cats carry a variety of things that cause upper respiratory infections. Most of them are viruses, so herpes virus and Khaleesi virus, and they come in with them. And it's a matter of their immune system and their tolerance to the stress that causes it to break out. And so when they're in people's homes and they're in their comfort zone and they're relaxed and they've been up to date on their vaccines and they have good nutrition, they don't tend to come down with the common cold. But it's kind of like us, as soon as we send our kids off to kindergarten, they're around a lot of other kids. They're kind of stressed out. They may or may not be eating as well as they did at home. They come home with every snuffle and sneeze that they have, and that's similar to the shelter. So for cats, is probably the worst place for them. It's new scents and sounds. It's stressful. They may have never had vaccines to help them build an immune system against them. They're crowded. We have way too many cats. They're in a cage. They may not have enough space or quality of room and an ability to kind of hide and get away from the things that they're seeing and hearings. And we know that the virus is kind of like you or I getting a cold. You generally get over it with a little bit of supportive care. It would be better if they could get out faster. So keeping them can cause in the onset of the upper respiratories. And so that's something commonly we try to you know, support adopters. In our care, we certainly don't generally send them out sick to somebody to have to take on that supportive care, although they will get better faster in somebody's home. So if they're willing to, we always support them in that. We try to kind of cover them for the first couple weeks after they've adopted, sort of like the lemon law with your car, that if, you know, if something that they either we missed, you know, a wound or a flea or a tick or something like that, or a cold or something that we missed when they were in our care, or we've, they've come home and within a very short time, they've had a complication from a neuter incision, or now they have a stuffy nose. We try to support the new adopters so that they don't get overwhelmed within the first few weeks of owning a new pet with something that they didn't really anticipate when they were taking it home.
0: It's extraordinary that you do that. Really, I find that rare. So what you're doing is something unusual out of the ordinary. This really makes me want to reflect on how we look at our city and county shelters, the difference between being a dumping ground or being a halfway house with the full intent of saving life. And actually, Victoria, the latter is what you're focused on. It's a bright light that I feel needs to boomerang to some of the other shelters that feel to me a little overwhelmed and have perhaps lost their taste for going above and beyond just to make sure that the animal has a second chance in life, right? I
1: think every shelter, that is their intention and goal. I mean, our primary premise, obviously, is more on the level of a first responder with police and fire, that we're there to make sure that the city is safe and that we don't have animals running in the streets, causing car accidents, or being aggressive and biting the kids as they're trying to get on the school bus to school and making sure they're not spreading diseases and running rampant down the street. That's really our primary premise to be there, but with that, we face that we have a number of pets that nobody's coming forward to say that they're my, I, I own them, I'm taking responsibility for them, I'm coming to claim them if they've gotten lost or they don't have identification or these they've run away. Nobody comes forward. Most shelters have about a 10 percent return to owner rate, meaning that the animal shows up as a stray. A good Samaritan has brought it in and said, I found it running down the street. Ten percent of those animals get reclaimed by somebody that came forward looking for them. And it's far less for that for cats. So I think these shelters whose intention is to be there as sort of a safety net for those animals who have no owner, who have no home and to make sure we have a safe community to live in are overwhelmed by these animals who have no owners and nobody stepping forward for them. And so they're trying to do their best, I think, really to deal with a volume that exceeds their capacity to care for them appropriately. And ideally, we'd love to get them back to the homes and support those homes and educate them into how to be responsible pet owners, or ideally find them a new home if that's what needs to be done. And And get those into homes that stay lifelong into those homes and don't come back into the system, as it were.
0: So before we go into my question on pet ownership, et cetera, what I want to go back to briefly is emergency services. So for emergency services, do you provide those at the shelter?
1: So I'm at the shelter full-time and Dr. Carroll, my part-time veterinarian, is there three days a week as well. So generally during the day hours, there is a veterinarian there except for a couple days of the week. If we are not there, I have RVT and staff that can kind of triage the animal and see is it something that one of us can be called in to deal with or we can help triage over the phone and deal with the next day. Or does it really need emergent care right then and there? And then we have kind of contracted or partnered with a local 24-hour facility to have them help us kind of triage an emergency care. If an animal control officer has a call overnight for an emergency, they have somewhere to take the animal so that they get the care until one of us can assess it or we decide what's best for it.
0: Well, that's very important for our audience to hear. So once again, I want to just thank you for providing that extra effort. So let's go right away to one of the issues. I really find remarkable. Oftentimes, I just find myself in a state of complete confusion, how people, when they move, they think when they are bringing their dog or their cat to a county city shelter that to them, they're providing care for this animal when oftentimes because of what's mandated and how many animals are in certain shelters and depending on the time of year and how crowded a shelter can be, that animal is met with the following problems. First of all, it's not used to a situation in a shelter. It could react from bad behavior. It's frightened. Perhaps you might find it's hard to manage and hard to examine because it's dealt with a shock of suddenly being in a shelter. And then also certain breeds do not do well in shelters. So what can you tell our audience who might find themselves approaching a move what would be your best advice on how to relocate their animals?
1: I mean, I think the thing that we try to encourage is that ideally you give yourself as much planning and prep time ahead of time to really know where you're going, into what community, how many pets you're allowed to own, where, you know, there's pet-friendly housing and apartments, so that you can set yourself up for success in finding somewhere that will accept you and your pets And really look to the shelter as sort of your last resource. I mean, luckily in the age we have now with access to information and Internet, it's so easy to find and share different rescue groups or different organizations who are helping people rehome their pets and really try to work on a private party where you find a friend or family member if you absolutely can't take the pet with you wherever you're going. But I think really trying to do your homework ahead of time and realize that they are a member of your family and that just as much as you plan for needing to move your kids to a new school and your RV to a new parking spot or wherever, that
0: you need to take into account where are you going to move your pet and where can your pet live with you as well. As we look at this topic, we have to take into consideration, for example, should you have a Pity or a Shepherd or a Husky, there are certain breeds that are more difficult to rehome than other breeds. So, is there an area on your website or any kind of advice that you give on how to look for rehoming?
1: I mean, I think the majority of people's stores start at grassroots and they kind of start with friends and family, or does anybody know? of somebody. A number of the rescue groups, probably even more than the shelters, are a good resource for, you know, posting stuff on their Facebook pages. And there's things I think like Pet Finder and some of the more national groups that also you can place ads on there. It does put the responsibility on the owner to, you know, make sure they're rehoming them with somebody who is responsible and able to also provide care for them. We probably could do a much better job of kind of putting out all the resources every and every web page in places that they can share. It is challenging depending on what breed and what um, size of animal you have. Certainly the bigger they are, the more protective breeds that they are, those can be more challenging, especially if you're a renter. You know, a renter insurance that'll allow you to have some of the bigger protective breeds. It definitely is sort of a universal challenge, I think not just in California.
0: Oh, I know, and this does lead me to the next topic, and that is the sad day when a family who just can't afford it feels they need to bring their senior pet to the pound. And this is a topic I've actually written about as a journalist. I wrote about this in LA Magazine. I just would love your advice to the public on this. So you're a doctor, you're a pet owner, you're a parent. So we all come to that difficult time in our pets' lives, and we know it's expensive to have a senior pet. But I just want to tell our audience the last thing in the whole wide world you ever really want to do for all the reasons you can think that are obvious is to bring your senior pet to a city or county pound. Your facility with you at the helm is veterinarian. I would feel more encouraged to bring a senior animal we don't. to you. Yeah. But that said, it's almost as if people can't bear to deal with it themselves. And there are those families that do discard the pet and then they pick up a younger one. And I urge everybody to really think, garden long before doing that. But there are ways senior pets can avoid being placed in a county city facility because I want to also encourage those listening to understand that when a rescue does save a senior pet, it costs them Probably even more money than it would cost you at home to treat this animal. So, what are your thoughts on the transitioning of senior pets? I think, like you said, I think it's definitely a huge
1: challenge for shelters,
0: including us, you know,
1: when we receive these senior pets because they have so much sort of deferred maintenance on them that they haven't had dental care. They may, you know, they have lumps and bumps that haven't been checked. They haven't had blood work. We don't know how their organs are functioning. And so it can quickly overwhelm a medical budget that would provide for sort of the younger, injured, otherwise healthy, adoptable animals. So it does place a huge burden. And sadly, some shelters can't handle it quite as well as others or rescue groups can really limit their ability to you know, help a volume of animals. So I think it really starts earlier on. I mean, what we would love to see is that people have had a relationship with their family veterinarian throughout the life of the pet. And as they start to get older, they sort of start to already be aware of what their problems are and what that may look like, you know, just as we age, you know, are you going to get arthritic? How are your organs functioning? Do you need to have some special supplements or diets? And then as they get towards the end, I always encourage people to really look at kind of quality of life. And we have some quality of life questionnaires we give people in terms of are they facing conditions that are treatable? Could you extract the tooth and and do some dental care and the animal is going to eat better and be pain free and really go on to live, you know, a normal life? Or are they starting to kind of have really lifelong issues that you're more managing chronic issues and it really that becomes the expense and the drain on the family. And I think those are ones that are better worked out with your family veterinarian who knows the pet, who knows you, the animal still in their home environment. And then you start to have a partnership where you work on what's reasonable, what's reasonable for this family to be able to handle in terms of expense, what's fair to the animal what's reasonable for the family and not putting that burden you know onto a shelter who doesn't know this animal at all if they have the capacity of starting from scratch we don't even know is this animal that we could place for another few years with a family and that's really where we do have to invest in looking at x-rays and lab work and diagnostics to make sure that they're relatively healthy they hide a lot of stuff on the inside and so it's not as easy as just kind of looking at them saying oh they look okay it's very draining on the shelter system and certainly on the staff. Those are the hard ones that the staff are like, oh, you know, they just breaks their heart to see an older animal come in.
0: You know, one of the things that I always find as somebody who's an outsider looking in, it's easy for us to criticize shelter staff throughout whatever state you're in, whatever county or city. It's probably the one area of rescue that does break everyone's heart. And I know that oftentimes it can also be the end of a rescue because you start taking in so many pets like this that, you know, once you start to treat them, you're opening yourself up to a large expense. So speaking of that, are there grants or is there, for example, I know Downtown Dog Rescue used to sit outside South LA shelter and they would communicate with families who really couldn't afford to care for their elder pet And they would try to talk them out of bringing them to the shelter. They had vouchers and other incentives to encourage families to reconsider. Do you know of any programs like that that you could tell our audience about? I know ASPCA
1: is working and partnering with the LA County shelter system. So they are doing just that. They are the resource that sits kind of outside that has the time and the staff to be able to really work through why is this person bringing any animal in not just the seniors and is it just something simple as they don't have access to a food or a leash or they you know simple vaccines or they're behind on their licenses or something kind of easy to fix versus are they facing a tough decision with an animal that has a major medical issue or a major injury and they're needing to navigate what kind of resources there are in the community, partnering with other vets. There are some grants, there are Actors for Others and some other groups that do help private citizens with sort of one-time unexpected medical bills. So I think that we are really trying as a shelter system and I think overall our goal is to really get the population under control so that we can then serve in the future as a resource for those who just need a little helping hand that you know need a little help To get over this bump, but don't want to necessarily relinquish their animal, but they're in a tough spot and they just can't deal with this one situation or something going on. And so we can be that resource to kind of try to help them get that access to care that they need to keep in the home.
0: Well, you know, I want to underscore that because. I just think it's such a vital and important message. This goes back to another issue I'm about to get to, and that is to keep the population of our local pets or nationally of our pets down, which of course goes to mandating spay and neuter and the end of puppy mills and something that we all talk about ad nauseum. And yet for some reason, we still seem to be here with the same issues afoot. And I wonder why you think that is. Do you see improvements in the size of pet populations in Southern California? I think
1: smallly, yes. I think little by little, we're sort of chipping away at that. And and lots of organizations are just working frantically to try to spay-neuter as much and as broadly as we can to try to get the volume of animals down. I think overall that we are making some progress. I think we'd all love to see it happen much faster than, than it is. Um, and so I think that's one of the biggest factors is, yeah, if we could just get the population down, then the city and the county and the humane societies and nonprofits really can direct their focus in a new direction, which is helping sort of access to care for those who you know want to keep the pet in their home, they want to be better pet owners, they need that education, they need that support and reasonable cost of care, and we can start to switch the direction of you know our focus. But right now, our
0: focus is really that we're
1: overwhelmed with so many pets that don't have owners, and we need to...
0: So I want to unpack that a little. I know I have run into this where you end up one way or the other with a magnificent animal, and you think, oh my God, I'd like three or four of them. Well, you know what here's what i have to say take it for what it's worth just love that one magnificent animal that you have so much And know that by neutering or spaying that animal, you are giving life to other animals. We don't sometimes think like this. We get a little lazy, a little uh, selfish with this concept of, well, I'm just one pet owner and I'd like to breed my dog or it's special. Or if you're doing this, there are 25 families also doing this. All of that, which really impacts not only your shelter system, but it also sets up a new standard. It raises euthanasia rates. It really is a domino effect, isn't it, Victoria? Yes, I would agree. Yes. I mean, we still hear a
1: lot of people say exactly what you said. I love my pet. I want to have more of them. I want my kids to see the miracle of life, or they just wait and wait, and then something happens, and the puppy has grown up, and now it's not as fun and cuddly, and they, you know, it's out in the backyard or it gets loose in the neighborhood, and before you know it, they are actively contributing to the sort of pet overpopulation
0: issue, and spaying and neutering is by far the answer. So I have to bring up the problem that all city and county shelters across America deal with, and that is. During the holiday times, you end up, for example, going to the pet store or going to your local county and city shelter and getting a puppy or cat, and then the holidays come and go, and it's too much responsibility, the dog has behavior problems, it's shedding, you're allergic, etc., cetera, et cetera. I just want you to talk a little bit about the responsibility at holiday times of pet ownership. Excellent. I think it's a good point, and really it's any
1: time of the year, but we definitely see that when people want to give it as a gift, That it's really a, a huge decision and a family decision. So giving it as a surprise gift might sound like a good idea, but it's probably a lot better earned if the children really are actively participating in the decision and realizing the responsibility that comes with wanting a pet. You know, every kid wants a puppy and they're cute and fluffy in the beginning, but then it kind of the novelty wears off when they realize, well, they need to get up early in the morning and take the dog for a walk and it has to be fed twice a day. And, you know, it needs to go to the vet and have its shots. And so maybe they need to have a little allowance jar that sets aside the money for every year for it to, you know, go and just have its wellness check. I think those are excellent skills. And we know that there's so many benefits of human-animal bond that we love, encourage their kids to have pets and have them be a member of the family. But I think it's it's really better as a, an education tool to really make it a family decision where you think through, what are we going to do with Fluffy when we go on vacation? Are we going to change our lifestyle to take Fluffy's with us on vacation? Or do we have the resources to find a, a neighbor or family or somebody to babysit for us? And what do we do when Fluffy gets injured? Do we have a little separate savings account set aside for Fluffy? Does he have his own little credit card? Because those things inevitably come up, even with the best owners, there's always going to be at least one major emergency. There, It's going to cost you, you know, thousands of dollars to get through, navigate one accidental, ran out the front door when grandma came over and got hit by a car or attacked by the neighbor or something like that. And so those are kind of the pivotal times that people don't think that all the way through when they're getting a surprise puppy that what do I do when it chews up my couch? What am I going to do when it needs something in the future as it gets older and the kids go off to college? Am I willing to keep the dog? I think that's where they're good education points. And I think they're good conversations to have and agree upon as a whole family and really think it all the way through. And that's what kids learn the benefit of budgeting and managing the pet's responsibilities and needs and what that means in terms of life responsibility.
0: Victoria, this is a fundamental conversation conversation that everyone should have with themselves and with their family before you adopt a pet. Yes, I would agree. I want to just back up for a second and talk about the most important part of any rescue at a shelter and the best way to provide better success rates in allowing rescues to save animals' lives at shelters throughout the country is to find a reliable and really good fosters fosters that are prepared to give love, care, be there, have home checks, fill out applications, the whole nine yards. So can you tell our audience a little bit about whether Rancho Cucamonga has any kind of foster network, what you do to encourage volunteers or to encourage people to foster? And to add to that question, just to throw this out there, Perhaps if you're thinking of having a pet, but you're not sure, isn't it a really good idea to think of fostering? Yes, you took the words right out of my mouth. So yes,
1: we have an active foster program. For us, that is our saving grace is because we don't have enough space in the shelter. And as we talked about before, they don't do well in the shelter. It's stressful. It's scary. It's full of germs. They do much better when they're in a home environment that's going to replicate what it looks like when they go home to an adopter's home. They get to know the animal's personality. They can name it. They get photos and more natural behaviors are seen. They have more room to move around. They're not as sick. So for the animals, it's a win-win. For the homes, it's a win-win because that's an opportunity for your kids to get that experience of what it means to care for an animal, what you can foster puppies that are just born. So you get to see that miracle of life without having to contribute to the pet overpopulation. And, you know, you get the experience of all different sizes and know that you're giving back and saving a life. So our foster program is huge. We also, in uh, 2015, because we didn't actually have enough foster homes and part of our struggle with euthanasia was we were having more animals, especially neonatal kittens, come in that we didn't have enough foster homes for. And we had staff scrambling to take them home and and not feeling comfortable, euthanizing little kittens that just couldn't stay overnight. We opened a, a neonatal kitten nursery so that we actually had a place for the kittens to go while we tried to find them foster. And so that has been a huge volunteer draw for us. And then actually in combination with that, we started what we call a pet cadet program. So kids could come in and volunteer with their parent or guardian if they're ages 13 to 18, so that they could get the experience of caring for animals, helping with the kittens, giving them baths, teaching them how to feed, and then hopefully encouraging them to be fosters and taking them home to foster as well. And that program has really blossomed and grown and allowed us to get more volunteers in and more actually adults and parents that said, well, I probably would have never come and volunteered had it been on my own, but my kid or grandkid really wanted to come. And so I'm coming with them. And now I really enjoy it and come back on their own to help us do laundry or dishes or sort of the the menial work that we have to do all the time.
0: That is a remarkable program. And I have not heard of one like that in all of my interviewing. I do know a lot of shelters try to create a certain list, but because of their population being overwhelmed, like in LA County, for example, it becomes very hard for them to keep up with the foster demand. And we all know that it really is life and death. And I want to really make our audience understand this. A foster can be the difference between life and death in many of your city and county shelters. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have to commit to an animal because usually If you foster, you have the protection of a rescue that you're working for. Isn't that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. So technically they're still owned by the organization that you're fostering for. And for us at Rancho, we provide everything for you. So we provide you the food and the cat litter and anything that you're going to need. And you come back every two weeks and we give them any medications or preventive meds or vaccines that they need. And so it's really for you to just kind of give your loving time and your space of your spare bathroom or spare bedroom to really help us be able to save a life. And like you said, For anybody who's passionate about animals or wants to know how they can help their local shelter, signing up as a foster is by far the number one lifesaver.
0: My God, I have to underscore this because this is remarkable from my perspective. Let's talk about euthanasia. I am aware that all the money that is spent on euthanasia could go in another direction to serve the community and have much more positive outcome. And I say this because of programs like your foster program, what we have talked about earlier with how you approach illness or shelter pets that are perhaps having difficulty in the shelter environment. I know there are certain shelters that have a mandatory cutoff time of three days, four days, and then they're immediately on a euthanasia list. What would you say has brought out this new approach towards wanting to move in a direction of less focused on euthanasia that Rancho Cucamonga is finding in your daily life as a shelter system? The credit really goes to
1: the staff and and the staff at every shelter. I mean, I think really nobody wants to euthanize an animal, especially one that's healthy and happy and completely adoptable. I mean, I think those times have passed where anyone will tolerate those kinds of animals being euthanized. And now the struggle becomes sort of what are treatable, what's reasonable that shelters can handle with the resources that they're given in terms of the little stuff like the little wounds or the upper respiratory infections that you know are treatable but are going to take a matter of weeks and they're going to take some time and some medications and a veterinarian to prescribe things and so those I think are some of the challenges in terms of just the resources available and where rescues and other organizations that have those access to those be able to take them to the vets or get them out of the system so that they can heal and get better faster are a huge asset and so For us, we've really just taken the approach of all staff are kind of involved in all aspects of it and really look at what does this individual animal need right at this moment in time? And is that something that we can either provide or find them somebody who can provide it if we can't? And sort of quickly scramble to get that done you know as quickly as possible or find a rescue or find an organization or somebody who can take on the pet if it's something beyond what we can handle or we're overwhelmed with resources and so we have staff helping find new rescue leads talking when they go to cat fairs or different events one of our challenges right now is ringworm in cats and we don't really have proper isolation for it and it is a treatable condition but it's a risk to the rest of the population to try to keep it in-house and we don't have anywhere to actually isolate it from them and so We have actively partnered kind of case by case to get them out to different rescues who can work to treat them. And it can take, you know, four to six weeks or more to treat them, but it is something that's treatable. So those kind of challenging cases where you know it's something that you, you know, if you give it a little time and some medication, it's going to get better. But who does that for six weeks? And they just don't have the space and the time. They can't just have this one sitting here for six weeks. And so that's the partnerships with the rescues. Has been the lifesaver because they are the ones who can find a foster home or find a private vet or something that'll be willing to isolate them for that time and get them the treatment they need and then be able to have a healthy cat to put up for adoption.
0: And I think this goes, once again, to you as the person who is kind of supervising the veterinarian approach at Rancho Cucamonga. This is really extraordinary of you, Victoria. So as we wind down here, there's one or two things I want to catch before we go. One is behavior that you see inside a shelter system from breeds that are really just notoriously very difficult inside a confined environment. What is the approach at Rancho Cucamonga when you have an animal, for example, if you're moving, you bring an animal that was adjusted at home, it gets into the shelter, finds that he is or she aggressive, or perhaps you have a stray that is just terrified. Being inside the situation, there's a lot of noise, a lot of chaos, there's a lot of fear. Do you have a specialist that works with these animals, or are there any programs in your shelter for this? We have a small behavior division
1: that's not really run by a specialist, but we have staff that we've kind of designated or has taken some extra training sort of in behavior. and, And they work to help us schedule the volunteers who come in and do the dog walking. So our focus is really actually more on the enrichment and sort of keeping them sane and healthy while they're with us. Certainly from the vet side or all the staff take an approach when they first come in to kind of give them time to debrief if they need it. If they're scared and fearful, we just take that extra time to try to get them out and see if that's something that's going to improve as the days go on and they're just fearful and they adapt. Or if they're truly an animal that is so under socialized and so aggressive that nobody's able to handle them and that's a different kind of more rare case by case, you know, basis. So for us, our focus is really on just kind of keeping them healthy and try to determine what their normal personality is. Because as we say, they all come in as strays. We have no idea if they've been through any sort of puppy obedience. Do they know any commands? Do they know any socialization? Can they even walk on a leash? Have they ever had a collar on? So sort of go back to the basics and start with that and try to get them out playing with other dogs we have play groups where we let them all play together if they've had their vaccines and really get out and just be able to be dogs and exhibit some of their normal behaviors and burn off some of that energy keeps them a little more happy and shows better for the adopters as they come in to try to see is this a good match for my home is this the energy level or activity of dog that I'm looking to bring into my house am I willing to work with a dog who has no socialization who's never been on a leash who's really going to need to go back to the basics of obedience and And I think that goes back to the sort of frustrating part of that the majority of the animals that we have come in the shelter have not really received any sort of basic common sort of good citizen. They don't know how to walk on a leash. They don't know how to not jump. They don't know how to even sit for treats. And so it kind of goes back to, I don't think we're doing the greatest job educating pet owners as they get new puppies and what it takes to just kind of socialize them and make them good citizens of the community. So hopefully they're a good citizen and may end up staying in their family because they're easier to handle and easier to travel with and, and be part of the family. Um, but we have to find them in the backyard, not receiving that kind of critical socialization that just like kids, puppies have normal socialization periods and things that they need in terms of exposure to sounds and different people and the vacuum cleaner and car rides and getting out. And I think a lo- most of the animals in our population have never received a lot of that cru- crucial socialization. And so they're, that makes them more difficult in stressful situations like being in a shelter around strangers if they've not even ever been exposed to anything in their upbringing. So...
0: Well, and I think that's such an extraordinary answer because I think it really is important for all of us to really empathize and understand what you just said. I think from my perspective, working very hard every day, networking animals, reaching out to rescues nonstop, you know, you're always going to find the shepherd or the husky or the pity or sometimes the lab that is presenting behavioral problems, food guarding, has a bite history of some kind that is not understood or recorded correctly. And immediately, in so many instances, these dogs end up on the euthanasia list. And if you really took a look at what caused the issue, you know, it's how we view our companion pets. It's a difference between a pet being a commodity, like a guard dog, or a pet being a real true member of your family. And, you know, one of the things I have to reflect briefly here is I had an extraordinary conversation with Robert Miller, who is the head of Riverside, a few weeks ago, and he brought out something that I thought was really quite poignant here. And that is, it's amazing sometimes to those in the shelter system, when you look at people who are homeless, for example. and how well they care for their pets because they are their only family members. And it's extraordinary sometimes when you find that animals are oftentimes the heart and the soul that keep veterans alive or senior citizens alive or they teach children so much about how to be better citizens and better people so i'm just saying this to the audience at large don't wait until your animal is just unruly if you find that you're having issues with behavior it's not an uphill battle that can't be remedied. Isn't that true?
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot about being sort of mindful and conscious of how we're interacting with these animals and what expectations we're putting on them and what situations we're placing them in when we haven't even given them any tools or skills to be successful in those situations. So If you haven't taught your puppy when you first brought it home that, well, I don't want you to sleep in the bed, but I let you sleep in the bed when you were a teeny tiny eight-week-old puppy, but now that you're an 80-pound lab, I want you to know automatically that you're supposed to do this, that, and the other, and really realizing you have to have kind of clear communication and boundaries about what you want that pet to do, and realize your responsibility, that then if you throw them in a situation and think you're going to be able to take them out on a hike or to the off leach dog beach and have them behave perfectly but you've never slowly, incrementally exposed them to the skills that are gonna make that a successful trip and visit. It's stressful for everybody, but especially for the pet. Those exposures are what's crucial to just kind of teach them the same manners and boundaries you would do yourself or your kids To say, what does it look like when you go off to school or go to visit the neighbors or go for a play date at your friends? You have to have some manners, and so do the the dogs as a family member.
0: I just have to say, the empathy that you have and the open heart that you have maintained as you work in such a challenging situation but it seems to have enriched you as a woman and as a human being in ways that I find truly remarkable and so patient and just full of the same energy today that I bet you started with when you first came to Rancho Cucamonga. So with that said, my last question, what are your pie-in-the-sky goals for the shelter?
1: I think I would love to see the shelter where we really had less animals. I mean, I would love the opportunity to be able to be out in the community, educating people and out in the schools, educating kids on what it means to be a responsible pet owner help to be successful in getting these pets to stay in their home and not coming into the shelters, make sure that everybody is spayed and neutered and current on vaccines and, you know, a good member of the community. And so the shelters are really there then as a resource to make sure that the families continue to be successful and enjoy the benefits of having a pet in their home. And we're not there as the sort of chaotic crisis we're in right now with too many pets to care for and not enough homes and people willing to step up and be responsible for them.
0: Absolutely. Amen to that. Honestly, Victoria, this has been an extraordinarily rewarding and very educational conversation today. And I want to ask all of our listeners if they have any questions or if they would like to donate or reach out to you at Rancho Cucamonga, how can people find you or find your website at your shelter?
1: We, Our website is uh, www.rcpets.info. And we are also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at the Rancho Cucamonga Animal Care and Adoption Center.
0: And do you have yearly adoptions that you would like to tell our listeners about?
1: We do sort of adoption specials all the time. We're running a, a new home for the holidays in October. We do a Cattoberfest to try to move some of our cats and kittens that we've grown up in the nursery over the summer. We participate in clear the shelters. Assemblyman Mark Steinorth sponsors adoptions sometime over the summer and we do a three-day ad- adoption where he pays for the first hundred adoptions. So we're kind of doing adoptions and promotions all year round, so we would love people
0: to support in any
1: way all the time.
0: Thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation, and I really want to thank you for your lengthy time today. You have no idea how vital your answers are. I think it's really up to all of us who care about animals to make sure the public opens their ears and their eyes a lot wider and a lot clearer to the problems that we're having in our shelters and for these companion pets. And I think if all of us just agree we need to work together, I really, see the day coming soon when there'll be less euthanasia, less overcrowding in our shelters, and we'll have an opportunity to give shelters like Rancho Cucamonga a way to create programs that will be more about uh, education rather than uh, management. Excellent. Thank you so much for having the conversation. It has been important. I want to invite everyone to America Speaks Podcast with Tish Lampert on Apple Podcasts, and also please go to our website at www.tishlampert.org for news of my forthcoming book. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice.